I want us to finish up uh, today and next uh, week talking about the dedication of the temple and some aspects of it that have to do with our faith in God and his reliability, okay? His reliability. So that's more of what we're going to talk about today. And we'll be in Second Chronicles um, 7 today and next week. Now, um, uh, I read about a, I was not in, in attendance for this, but I read about a college graduation a few years back, back in 2011, when um, um, the speaker, um, uh, the writer of this particular story, is talking about, he doesn't remember much of what the speaker said at commencement. Now, do you remember much of what the speaker said at your commencement? I, I spoke at a high school commencement once, and I'm sure those kids don't remember a thing I said. Um, uh, you know, that's just kind of how it goes. Even though all I, I get to go to at least one a year, and all these talks are stirring and good. But you figure within uh, six months, six weeks, six days, six minutes, they've forgotten. They're t caught up in the moment. But this particular speaker, something stood out, what he talked about. There, one piece of advice that, um, that this particular um, uh, commencement speaker left with the kids is that they should write a thank you note to each person who gave them a graduation present. Now, I've never heard that talked about, a graduation. I think that's really interesting. And he went on to emphasize, the speaker, that there is a need for handwritten notes. He urged them not to send thank you cards that had pre-printed messages, but they should instead write personal messages of thanks, no matter how small the gift. Amen. I, I just think that's great advice, but how about, how about somebody high up in an in a educational institution taking time at graduations to tell kids this? I just think it's kind of incredible and really good advice. A prominent reminder to God's people, and we're going to see today one, Throughout Scripture is to be thankful, to live a thankful life. Uh, the Psalms include a lot of this. Now, let's go to, keep your finger there in 2 Chronicles 7, and I want you to go to the right with me just a little bit to Psalms. It's over just two or three books to your right. Let's track some things that the psalmists say. I'm going to start with Psalms 95. Look at verse 2. Let us come into his presence before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. All right. Let's go to Psalm 100, which we're going to come back to in a minute. So going to hang on to that one. Look at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Now give thanks to him, bless his name. So if we're going to do what that encourages us to do, then when we come to church, we'll come through the doors with thanksgiving. Look at Psalm 116, verse 17. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. Now, but it doesn't stop in the Old Testament. Uh, there is similar admonitions in Ephesians 5 and Philippians 4 and Colossians 2. And um, one of my favorites is in 1 Thessalonians 5 where it says, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
So in what we're going to talk about today, we're going to see the important role that giving thanks plays in celebrating the dedication of Solomon's temple. Now, remember, that's kind of where we were, if you were here last week. We were, Solomon was praying this wonderful prayer in dedication of, of uh, the, the temple, the first temple of Israel that he was dedicating here, and, the, and all the people were gathered to that. We're going to go back to that today in the next chapter. This was not just a day of thanksgiving like we kind of celebrate uh, in the U.S. and in Canada. This was a celebration that spanned two weeks thanking the Lord and dedicating. We're going to talk about those two weeks. Now, um, the conclusion to Solomon's prayer that we studied last week um, is of such power that it's interesting to me that its wording is also closely reflected in a psalm. So what, what I want you to do while I read, um, while you go to 2 Chronicles 6, 41 and 42, I'm going to read, and I want you to follow along where we were last week. So I want you to go back a chapter into verse 41 and 42, and I'm going to read from Psalm 132, and I want you to see how closely this is mirrored. All right? All right, I'm going to go to Psalm 132, and I'm going to start in verse 8, but I want you to read 2 Chronicles 6, verse 41 and 42. Now listen, listen how closely this uh, mirrors this, okay? Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your godly ones sing for joy. For the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed, the Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. Okay, now I, I read actually an extra verse, but it's almost word for word, isn't it? Now, this is interesting to me because Solomon found, recorded in the Hebrew hymn book, the words of his father, David. And in his prayer, he uses dad's words almost verbatim, didn't he? I find that really intriguing, um, that he would say, okay, Dad has talked about this somewhere. I want to be sure I catch it. And so in his prayer, he, at least for part of it, absolutely mirrors what Dad has said when he was king. Now, go. let's go to chapter 7. Steve, can I read, get you to read the first three verses? Okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of take off on something here in just a minute, but Sally, do you mind reading today? Okay, go back to 1 Kings, so it's two books back to the left. 1 Kings, um, I had it here in my mind, just a second ago, it's there. 18, verse 38 and 39, we'll get there in just a minute. We're glad you feel like reading today. Um, all right, so... This is, if you remember, this is right following what we studied last week in this prayer of dedication of Solomon. Okay? What happens 
when Solomon prayed this prayer. Fire. Fire. Now, this is an unfair question to ask. What happens when you pray? Uh, I've not seen fire in my lifetime, but okay. Thunder and lightning when you pray? Okay, I want to be sure to give you my prayer list, okay, pal? Uh, isn't this interesting? Literally, the old timers would say, okay, and I'm, I'm an old timer at this point, so I can say this. He prayed the glory down. You ever heard that phrase? He literally prayed God's glory into the room. There are a lot of things that set that up, and we're going to talk about all the things that set that up. But literally, God's glory showed up in that place. Uh, Ellie, if the History Channel had covered this event, I think they would no longer doubt whether God was real. If they'd been there. Something happened that's beyond a physical, uh, earthly explanation. Something fantastic, something supernatural took place. God showed up. We're going to talk about how, um, how real that all, all there was. Now, look at, just look back a, um, a page at chapter 5. One of the reasons this took place, and we're going to uncover this in a little bit, but if you go back to chapter 5 and verse 5, they brought up the ark. That's one of the reasons this is going on. God's presence, as represented by the ark of the covenant, has entered the room. They brought up the ark in the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils which were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they couldn't be counted or numbered. And we're going to get back to that in a little bit. But there was a lot going on to prep for this particular moment. Uh, it reminds me, and, and by the way, the Lord comes down in fire and consumes all this sacrifice, and it's a, it's a bunch, all right? It reminds me of what happened at the test of deities, sometimes it's called, with Elijah in competition with hundreds and hundreds of prophets of Baal, who is a non-god, okay? And Elijah calls down fire. Now, now, uh, Sally, would you read, uh, second, it's, uh, what did I say, 1 Kings or 2 Kings? I think it's 1 Kings. 8, 18, okay, Th verse 38 and 39. And the fire, uh, uh, sorry, when the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. In both of these instances, so kids, you catch what Sally was reading. They have soaked the sacrifice all around with water, which was a trick because it hadn't rained in a while. They soaked them all around, and, and Elijah said, called down fire from heaven. And it not only consumed the sacrifices, burned them up completely, but lapped up uh, the water around it in a, in a trench around this altar that he had built. In both cases, and here's what goes in your first blank, in both cases, God's fire in this, in this instance, uh, both, it was not because God was mad, that's a different thing. It was in, he was doing this because he was accepting their sacrifice. 
okay? He was accepting the sacrifice. He wanted to know that he was pleased with what's going on here. And certainly, where Solomon is, is dedicating this, uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world here, that was built to God's glory. Now, I, I find it intriguing. When you read the last part of verse 1 and, and verse 2, what actually happens then at that point? The fire enters the place. Um, the, uh, the, the sacrifices are burned up. What then happens? Verse 2. It's the word I want you to put in your blank here. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. In fact, if you look back at, at where Steve read in chapter 2, the priest couldn't get in because the glory of the Lord was there. The, the imagery from when uh, similar imagery and similar language uh, of a thing that happened when back in the book of Exodus, they dedicated the tabernacle that uh, kind of portable sanctuary that they carried with them in the wilderness for all those years. A similar thing happens there, and the thought in, in Exodus is uh, God came down in a cloud and filled the place. So the idea would be, you and I are sitting in church, and the glory of the Lord comes down in such a tangible way that I'm sitting next to Rhonda, but I no longer can see her. It's that thick. The presence of the Lord is that thick. It uh, literally, um, um, the priests and all of, um, all of those who are involved in this very elaborately planned uh, ceremonial worship service. Now, you remember, they were in South Palestine. They were in Southern Israel in um uh, in Jerusalem. So I'm sure what the high priest said, who was also from the south, shut her down. I'm sure that's in there somewhere. Shut her down. Literally, they had to stop. They had to let it kind of die down a bit, dissipate, before they could move on. Shut it down. Okay, just hang on. We're just going to wait a while. Uh, they'll wait to enjoy that moment. Obviously, it's going to be written about when it's chronicled later. Uh, but they had to literally, because the presence of the Lord was so overwhelming, they had to shut down uh, the service itself. And then the people responded. Okay, guys back in this corner. If David, and I know he's the cheerleader for this. If David were to say out loud right now, God is good. How would you respond? All the time. Okay. All the time. I, I, you know what? I love it when a plan works out the way I want it to. <laughs> I know you, okay? And I know David. You've been taught well. They had a similar response in verse 3. What was their response? They fell on their face to a person and they worshiped. Their response was fitting. And they said something that I want us to spend some time with, if we get no further, which I hope we will. Um, um, I want us to be sure to catch what they said, because it's not too far removed 
David, and guys, from what you, you guys say. Here's what they said. Okay? They said, they thanked the Lord to begin with from uh, falling on their face. They said, um, they gave, they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord or praise to the Lord, depending on your translation, saying, truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. If you're reading from the NIV, it's probably going to say it something like, um, it's going to say, um, he is good, his love endures forever. Okay. Now, we just got to do this little exercise. I think it's going to be really good for us. Keep your finger there. Let's go back to Psalms. I told you we'd come back. And let's start in Psalms 100. This seems to be this phrase, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever, seems to be a pretty common worship phrase. This is, um, this is a classic. If, if uh, we were looking today for a classic Worship him. What would your answer be? What's just a classic worship hymn? Amazing Grace. Amazing grace. It's certainly a, a, a hymn of testimony, but giving thanks to God for, for salvation. Another one. Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Old Fanny Crosby hymn uh, that really allows us, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. So it's, it's kind of a gospel hymn, but it but it allows us, it puts words in our mouths to praise God. Another one. How great they are. How great they are is one that I think of because it's all about God. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to be. What did I hear? Great is thy faithfulness. All about God's faithfulness and care. What a friend we have in Jesus. I couldn't live without it, you know. Now, I want you to go with me to Psalm 100, and I'm going to walk us through several just little passages here. All right. Um, in fact, on this one, I want to read several verses, and I want you to listen for what we were just talking about, okay? This is Psalm 100, very important. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Here we go. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Here we go. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. You got the same thing repeated in, uh, in 106. Okay? In 106, begins with, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, I put some other references here, but I want you to fast forward to 136. 136. This one was intended, 136, was intended to be chanted, spoken, or sung by the entire worshiping community. And it was designed to be a bit antiphonal, which means... A leader or leaders would say a line or sing a line, and the congregation would speak back to them, kind of like what David does with the men from living faith. Okay, So look at 136, and what the leaders would say is give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and everybody answers, for his loving kindness is everlasting. 
His love is everlasting, is what they would say. Okay, so then they'd go on and say, give thanks to the God of gods, for his love is everlasting. It's just very, very important, it seems like to me, that this fitting response to what God had done, and they gave him all the credit here. You and I could learn something from that, right? We don't come together on Sunday morning to celebrate me. We don't even come together on Sunday morning to celebrate the church. Although there are lots of things to celebrate about this place. We come together on Sunday morning, or whenever we come together, to worship and praise, is to give God credit. To focus and center around him. Because he's the one whose loving kindness, his mercy, his love is everlasting. He is good. Only good. All the time. Okay, now, I want us to go to the next little section here. We're going to start with verse 4. John, can I get you to read 4, 5, and 6? And we're going to talk about what Solomon's up to while the people are doing this. Okay, here we go. Remember, he prayed last chapter. What else is he doing here? Here we go. There, there's, kind of a, uh, there's kind of a formula being followed here, and we'll talk about that a little bit as we go through. But in, in this time, in this age, typically when the subjects of a kingdom came together, they would bring sacrifices and gifts to the king, and they would offer them to the king. What's different about this setting? Beginning with verse 4. Not only, go ahead. Absolutely, you caught it, Sherman. Uh, The idea was, they're not bringing offerings to the king. They're bringing offerings to God, and Solomon is taking part. In fact, he's leading the way. He knows his place. That's what goes in your blank. He knows his place in all this. I'm not being celebrated here. I'm not being worshipped. That would be inappropriate. But I need to help lead the people to worship and praise and thank and sacrifice. Solomon himself is also a worshiper here. Now, there is, uh, when we get into verse 5, there's some question as whether or not this is literal or otherwise. I'm going to opt for the thought that it's literal why am I concerned about whether or not verse 5 is literal or not? A lot of beef and mutton. Yeah. You know, lots. All right. A lot. I mean, I, I read one thing this, this week that said, and to get that done, it would take fact, sacrificing a sacrifice every minute for 10 days. 24 hours, you know, it's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. Um, um, 
But, but the idea here is, look back, go back to 5. We looked at that a minute ago. Somebody read verse 6 from chapter 5. This kind of frames it for us a little bit. Who's got it? Verse 6 from chapter 5. interesting they finally counted what's good but it was innumerable here I read a story this week about um, the Shah of Iran remember that story most of us have lived through that deal back in 1971 so some of you in the room had, weren't living then but for those of us who were alive back then we heard a little bit about a huge party that he threw the party was to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the founding of the Persian Empire by Cyrus the Great. You can read about that in Ezra 1. It syncs up with the Bible, right? Well, the Shah of Iran is celebrating the beginning of the Persian Empire, the Persian Kingdom. And for this, he got so ecstatic because of his role in this huge event that the Shah designated himself Shahanshah, which means the King of Kings. I would kind of want to be careful there. So in October 1971, the world's political elite came to Iran to observe the Shah's attempt to show how his reign replicated the greatness of the ancient kingdom. A colossal tent city made of silk was erected for the occasion, 18 tons of food, and as many as 25,000 bottles of wine and liquor were flown in for 600 guests. Would you call that excess? It was a grand occasion, obviously. The epitome of excess. But you and I know the rest of the story, that a few years later, the Shah found himself in exile, replaced by an Islamic dictatorship, partially because of the excesses of his lifestyle. And, and even the way he kind of poked the bear on this kind of an occasion. Compare that to what we're reading about. Solomon, through an enormous celebration, all for God. I don't know the answer to my question here, but evidently, this staggering exhibition was not too much. Okay? Typically, when we're talking about stuff like this and talking about lots of food, why not feed the poor? They did. Okay, This was a barbecue somewhat, all right? So I think we want to be careful. There are times when, when we're celebrating the right thing, celebrating something God has done, there are times to pull out the stops. And this was one of the main ways they did that. All right, look, look on now at verse 6. David had made lots of preparation for this event. I want us to kind of catch them real quick. Um, who, who would not mind going over to 1 Chronicles? So one book back to the left. 1 Chronicles 22.5. He'll get that. Thank you, Joe. And, um, and then somebody else, if you will, get 1 Samuel 16.23. So that's going to go back three or four books. 1 Samuel 16.23. John, you get that one? All right. Let's talk about what kind of... David is off the scene. He's dead and gone. 
Solomon's reigning in his stead. But what you need to understand here is that music is a big deal in this celebration. And David kind of got it already in, in, the, in the verse before us, in, chapter, in verse 6. What especially does, does it say that David did? He made a bunch of instruments with this celebration in mind, even though he wasn't going to be there. Okay? Uh, back when uh, my son, son had an office here in this building, not too far from here. <laughs> I'd go to the third floor to his office. And uh, there were lots of things in there that were interesting for an office. But he was a young guy, right? Lots of hair, you know, all that. He had musical instruments all over the room. Because that's who he is. He also had a velvet Elvis. Which I'm not sure how appropriate that was for a church office. But you know. It was, it was a start to con lots of conversations I'm sure. One of his volunteers had given him a velvet Elvis. That's probably worth some money. You know. Anyway. Lots of instruments. What, how would it have been. Um, if, you, if you walked into David's office his throne room back in the day, he would have been able to say, yeah, I made that. See that harp over there? I made that. See that flute? Yeah, I kind of tried my hand at that one too. By the way, if you're uh, ever around and listen to, uh, I, I love to hear Gerald Tiffin play uh, whatever, whatever flute he's got in his hand. He's got all kinds of different flutes he plays. He makes most of them, which is kind of incredible. To, me. to be able to bring this wonderful music out of something I made that's kind of David's story. So let, let's look at a couple of places where it kind of gives us the detail. Um, uh, 1 Chronicles 22.5. Got, got it for us back there, partner? We looked at this last week that David had made lots of preparation for the building of the temple, but he also made preparation for this worship moment. David, um, if you know a little bit about Old Testament history, you know that David established schools of music. He established, um, he was kind of one of the earliest um, music educators in some ways. He had family after family after family who were good at playing or singing teaching other families how to sing. How wonderful. Part of the preparation for this very moment. And then, uh, John, I had you go to 1 Samuel 16, 23. Part of this comes from who David just really was at his essence. David was a musician himself. He saw the value of music in worship. It's not the only thing, but it's certainly a central, important thing. And lots of music accompanied this day and all these sacrifices. Now let's go on uh, back to 2 Chronicles 7, and I want us to pick up verse 7, 8, and 9. Who will read those three? And then we'll finish up. 7, 8, and 9. Thank you. Solomon consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord, 
and there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the fellowship offerings, because the bronze altar he had made could not hold the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat things. So Solomon observed the festival at that time for seven days, and all Israel with him. A vast assembly, people from Lebo, Hamath, to the Wadi of Egypt. On the eighth day they held an assembly, for they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days, and the festival for seven days more. On the twenty-third day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their homes, joyful and glad in heart, for the good things the Lord had done for David and Solomon and for his people Israel. Okay, this is kind of the, the final of this celebration, but I don't, don't go to the end of it yet, all right? In verse 7, the offerings that were offered reflect the totality of the people's devotion to the Lord. If you remember when we were reading in verse 5 about the number of sacrifices, and we were, when we read in chapter 5 about how, um, how many, they couldn't count them, okay? Now, I love what happened last week, right about now. Right about now, I looked at Fred Quinn, and I said, I forgot what the dimensions were of the bronze altar. But by the time we were done, Fred knew how much it weighed. How much was it, Fred? 15 tons. And I, as I recall, it was seven and a half, a nine and a half, about four feet tall, something like that. Fred had it all figured out through the right thickness. And, uh, how, of course, how, isn't it wonderful to know a guy that knows how much a cubic foot of bronze weighs? I, you know, how do you find that? But he had it figured out for us by the end of this deal. 15 tons. But what I want you to catch here, you remember the size of it. We're going to say it's, you know, like this, but a little bigger. The sacrifices they stacked up, wouldn't, it couldn't fit it. What would you say, John? The Texan will always bail you out. <laughs> the Texan will always, always bail you out. Okay. Fred, I didn't know you were Texan. We're going to have to talk. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so what he did was he took additional space around that bronze platform, that bronze, and around the bronze altar, which it was before, and he consecrated all that property because they had to fit all these animals that were being sacrificed somewhere. So the, the uh, immensity, the enormity of this thing, really what we've got to catch here has something to say about the devotion of the people to the Lord. This was a big deal, and God was a big deal, and they were celebrating it. Uh, the burnt offerings that it talks about here would represent an offering for sin, or when they did burnt offerings, it was to dedicate, and this was a dedication. The uh, grain offerings that were mentioned here, and there was bushel after bushel after bushel of produce, the grain offerings indicated thanksgiving. And so they did plenty of all of that. And so according to what Sally read in verse 8, um, another indication of devotion, she did, did well mentioning these names, but the idea was to catch the distance many of them traveled and were willing to travel to get there. They, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, which came right after this celebration. It was the second week of the celebration, which was supposed to happen in the seventh month anyway. That's when it was, during harvest time. Uh, what you can catch, in, in, as Sally read about those places, is from far north to far south in the country, and from east to west, they came. Many of them walking as much as 100 miles or more to be a part of one of these celebrations or the other, or both. They were totally devoted to 
what's going on there. And an indication of that devotion is the distance they were traveling. They were willing to travel. And now, okay, we get a little nervous when the service goes past an hour. They were there for two weeks. Two weeks. Many of them, at least. Uh, the the uh, celebration that followed, the one we're talking about, in verse 8 is the uh, Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which is where they would kind of build a little arbor and live in it for a few days, celebrating, kind of remembering their time in the wilderness, wandering, and how God, good God was to them. It was, and it was the celebration of harvest. So that's part of all that. And they've now worshipped for a couple of weeks. Now, what was the result? Look at verse 10. Verse 10 is not on your outline. David, let's look at it anyway. What, what, how did they feel? What was the result of this? What did it do to their hearts after this two weeks? They were happy. Did you catch that? I, I just think that's kind of wonderful. It says, on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their tents. He said, go on home, rejoicing and happy of heart because of the goodness of the Lord had shown to David and Solomon's people as well. How many Marines do we have in here? No Marines in here? I'm looking for, I'm looking for, I, I know we've got some in here, but they may not be here today. You all know, I think, the, um, the Marine motto. Anybody state it? Semper Fi. Semper Fi. Anybody know what it means? Always faithful. Okay. What would it be like if, now, by the way, that's Latin. If you and I adopted the motto as a family of faith, uh, something similar to that, but semper gratis, always thankful. Semper gratis, always thankful. There are lots of verses in both the Old Testament and the New Testament where we're admonished to do that. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says it this way. Give thanks in all circumstances. The Lord is good. Even when it's hard to see that. But I'm called, even on the tough days, even when what I'm going through is testing my mettle, I'm called by Paul in this case to say, okay, Lord, I don't pretend to understand exactly all the things that you and I are going through, and he'll be with you through it. Did you know that? But I'm going to thank you anyway. I'm going to thank you anyway. Semper gratis. Regardless of what you and I go through, I know you're going to be there. So I'm going to always be grateful. I'm going to give you my sacrifice sometimes of praise. My guess is, if you and I were semper gratis, there would be a greater sense of contentment. A greater sense of even, the word was used here, I didn't make it up, happiness, joy. Will you take up the challenge with me, especially during this Easter season? Semper gratis. Always 